I also like the applications that work with IoT and maintenance and operations and even manufacturing. Predictive maintenance where systems learn from patterns of use and failure and then work with the sensor data to prevent breakdowns are getting a lot of traction and just have such obvious practical implications that it's hard not to be excited about them. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Around the world, artificial intelligence, or AI, is everywhere. In just a few years, it has begun to transform businesses from supply chains to hiring, from manufacturing to marketing and customer services, maintenance, and medicine. Alan Earls is a seasoned journalist and the author of our title story, AI Means Business, in the current edition of Smart Industry. Alan, can you tell our listeners exactly where AI is heading and why business and managers should be excited? Well, I'll try, Tim. Uh, really, I think the sky is the limit. In an article published last year, Kaplan and Heinlein defined AI as a system's ability to correctly interpret external data and to learn from such data and to use those learning to achieve specific goals and tasks through flexible adaptation. Well, that's certainly a definition of something that could find very broad application. And I think we're seeing that around us now. There are consumer-grade capabilities like Siri, with which we are all familiar, but there are also many more. As a result of the pandemic, for example, I would be surprised if there was not much more application of AI for everything, from supplementing the judgment of clinicians to simply helping automate some of the processes that move people through the medical system. Um, robotic process automation is another thing that gets a lot of discussion lately, and that has an AI component. It seems to be getting a lot of traction in the white-collar world, so-called professional world. For example, in financial services or insurance, where there are innumerable highly similar transactions being conducted in those environments. The usual model being proposed is not that a professional will be replaced, but rather that they will be repaired with an RPA agent, and that agent will then learn from the human and act as an assistant to improve productivity and accuracy. But of course, it isn't hard to imagine the human being moved aside at some point and given a different assignment that involves things not yet within the capability of RPA. And in general, it's very easy to get enthusiastic about this, obviously, because there are so many potential applications. But it's not just nerds that are excited. No, by no means. I think uh, it's touching everybody in, in their lives. Um, Siri is the uh, most obvious example. All kinds of people that um, probably don't even realize anymore that they're dealing with artificial intelligence use that. Applications for artificial intelligence are popping up all over the place. What are a few that you ran across when researching for your article that impressed you the most? Well, it, that's again, there are so, so many, but uh, I did mention a French retailer, and I don't think that it's unique in their use of AI and analytics to discover non-obvious buying patterns that uh, could drive their stocking recommendations in advance of uh, seasonal changes. For example, based on a, a study of consumer behavior and weather patterns, they were able to much improve their throughput on their retailing. A similar level, I know very early analytics studies at the former uh, dominant U.S. retail giant Sears way back in the 1990s, and it wasn't AI at that point, uh, helped them discover that when they sold chainsaws 
and um, betting products at the same time both got a boost, presumably because of some kinds of dynamics within traditional husband and wife arrangements. Um, now, nowadays, of course, much more sophisticated analysis is possible. I also like the applications that work with IoT and maintenance and operations and even manufacturing. Predictive maintenance where systems learn from patterns of use and failure and then work with the sensor data to prevent breakdowns are getting a lot of traction and just have such obvious practical implications that it's hard not to be excited about them. In your article, you quote Greg Schultz, a senior advisory analyst at Storage I.O. People are sometimes skeptical about the growth of AI. Just because not all AI is exotic, deep learning, or extremely complex, a lot of it involves familiar but very useful things, like bots and virtual assistants. Is he right? Yes, absolutely. You know, I have to be a little cautious and say I'm not a scientist, of course, so someone might argue the point. But I think many of our everyday experiences, searching with Google, for example, are things that would have been thought of as artificial intelligence in the earlier days. So to some extent, I think we, we have to keep asking ourselves what we define as artificial intelligence. As I mentioned, Siri and other things that can recognize and respond to human speech, so-called natural language, are also in that category. And there are sometimes something like a dozen kinds of AI, probably an equal number of supporting technologies. I know when I spoke to Anne Laray, Taylo, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, uh, at Cap Gemini in France, in Paris specifically. She broke it down in a very useful way with three basic building blocks. First, she said, um, there's the uptake of computer vision, which is, uh, you can see uses of that in Google and finding things and finding things that look similar to other things. And of course, in um, manufacturing and production pr uh, processes, the ability to recognize things, recognize things that shouldn't be there is important. We see this in security systems with being able to recognize faces. A second, uh, as as I mentioned a moment, a moment ago, is natural language processing, which is uh, in, infecting every part of our world. Uh, we just get used to it and don't think anything of the ability to um, hear and understand speech or process documents. And third, she mentioned the automatic speech rec recognition, which is very closely related. How much you can do with that is a moving target. More and more machines seem to really understand intention and even to some degree um, mood or, or things like that in the speaker. Okay. I hear you saying that apparently one size AI doesn't fit all. How do I find the right one for my use? Well, um, there are, I, I guess it's, it's important to remember that there are many, many, it's a, AI is a vast field. It covers things like reasoning and problem solving, knowledge representation, natural language, which we mentioned, social intelligence and general intelligence. Remember that goes back to the, the Turing test proposed by Alan Turing 70 years ago, that uh, we will have actual artificial intelligence when you can't tell whether you're interacting with a machine or a human being. So um, those are some ways of breaking down the, the, the output or the use of AI. And then with, within the creation of AI, there are symbolic reasoning systems, statistical learning systems, machine learning systems, probabilistic methods of, of uh, getting to the kinds of results that humans generally achieve. So that's a very long-winded preface to the notion that there's probably in almost any realm a place where you can apply AI if you haven't already done so. And like every other uh, 
technology, you need to do so with your eyes open and applying your own intelligence so that you don't overinvest in something that may not be appropriate or underinvest and miss an opportunity. The um, it, It's complicated. Um, as you indicated, AI has been around for quite a while in various guises and, and forms and fashions. Um, it has also gone through several winters uh, since its inception, which is traditionally dated back to the famous Dartmouth summer camp in 1956, um, which many regard as the birth of AI as a scientific discipline. Um, critics have said that AI enthusiasm uh, keeps making lofty promises they can't keep. Is it different this time around? Less different. I think there, there's inevitably hype and people getting over-enthused, but clearly AI is actually doing real things in the real world, probably in some in many ways less dramatically than than the early enthusiasts would have proposed. But I certainly remember those winters. We had a winter probably in the early 90s after immense promise in the 80s. Um, some of Minsky's people had come out and started companies that attracted all kinds of venture capital. And they were going to, you know, offer us the sun, moon and stars, but it really didn't work out. Um, however, you know, he, he did... Uh, to Minsky's credit, say that it would, it would take at least a generation to mainstream AI, and he's probably not too far on that, out, far out, off on that. We do have mainstream AI, albeit perhaps not as dramatic as some of the things that have been promised in the past. So I think we're definitely on a steady, certain adoption curve at this point. AI is here to stay. Well, I think McKinsey agrees. Their Global Institute noted in a report in 2019 that uh, among the worldwide digital top 30, only two of them are from Europe. Why is that? Don't Europeans get it? Um, you know, that's a real good question. Why do some um, innovations happen in some place and not another? Um, in Silicon Valley is a famous example and that perhaps was not foreordained, although people could argue about the point, but there clearly is a concentration of, of activity in other places, but I don't think that's fixed or immutable. And in fact, that same report noted that about a quarter of all the AI startups are currently in Europe, and they went on to suggest that this even a moderate increase in AI development and application in Europe could make a tremendous difference difference economically, perhaps 2.7 trillion added to the regions, 2.7 euro, trillion euro added to the economy within the next decade. We could sure use it in these days of the coronavirus. Uh, one area where Europe seems to enjoy a lead is the focus on the ethical aspects of AI, addressing potential biases in data sets or algorithms, building more explainability and visibility into AI solutions, and adopting a more transparent approach about the finality and intent of AI applications. This raises an interesting question, which was also posed in your article, namely, can AI be evil? Ah, uh, yes, that, that's a good one. I, I think not evil in the real sense that humans can be very evil, uh, but evil in effect. We can, we can make AI do or not do anything we want, or, and sometimes, as uh, the people you mentioned in Europe, have noted, and they are not alone in noting, that AI is built by human beings and the human beings that build it inevitably end up including in AI unfortunate prejudices. For example, some of the early facial recognition efforts, in fact, probably many of the dominant ones today still have been trained using primarily Caucasian people and ca Caucasian males. So people who are not Caucasian males may get misrecognized or miscategorized by these systems. So. You know, that's probably a pretty easy fix, but there are 
more subtle understandings that have probably gone into the creation of AI that we may not fully grasp and making AI transparent and understandable and making its results traceable, particularly in business settings, is going to be incredibly important. So that's a new challenge that perhaps wasn't anticipated before. Okay, um, Alan, finally, you touched on it very briefly in the beginning, but uh, there is this this fear among many people that robots are out to take our jobs away. Um, in fact, our own jobs, journalists and writers, are on a list of endangered jobs that was published by Time magazine. How worried are you? It certainly has crossed my mind. And, you know, honestly, when I think of some of the writing tasks I do, they do have a routine, routinized element to them. So I do think uh, AI could come for portions of my job. Other aspects, probably not, but maybe I'm just fooling myself. And that clearly is going to be true for lots of job descriptions. I think there's room for much more uptake by AI. Will this be different than any other form of automation in the past where generally the closing off of one kind of opportunity opens up new ones? I don't know. You know, in the a century ago, human hands were needed, all human hands practically, to maintain farms and to keep industry operating. Now we have fewer hands needed for those tasks and more people are able to pursue careers as artists and artisans, for example, or athletes, things that would have been highly unusual a century ago. Thank you, Alan, for sharing your insights with our listeners. And uh, thanks very much. See you soon. Take care. Thank you. We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. If you need an industrial IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Will banks conquer tech or will tech conquer banks? Here to talk with me about the future of banking in the age of IoT and AI is Stian Overdahl. Stian is a regular contributor to Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, and he's based in Berlin. As I understand it, Stian, smartphone banking and artificial intelligence could help revolutionize the way banks deliver services. But the same technologies could also prove to be their undoing. How so? Well, depending on your age, if you think back to how you used to interact with your bank 10 years, 20 or even 30 years ago, you'll see how much has changed in that time. Once upon a time, we always used to go into the branch, whether it was to make a deposit or whatever transaction. But today it's almost all done via our smartphone or online or even on the phone. So that's been a big change for banks. And that's, in a way, given them the, an advantage in that they can interact with their customers much more frequently through their apps. The other side, though, is that, of course, it's given new banks and tech players the opportunity to reach out to those same customers and try to compete by offering the same services. The big question really for banks is how aggressively big tech companies like Amazon will move into this space. 
And that's something that everyone is watching. Most banks have recovered from the 2008 financial crisis quite well. And while it remains to be seen how they will weather the corona crisis, the world's 1,000 biggest banks still have combined assets worth $123 trillion, with an average return on assets of 0.9%. So they seem to be sitting pretty, don't they? Well, certainly it points to how big the banking sector is in terms of the global economy. A lot of that business is, is with banking governments, so that's not going to go away. Uh, in terms of the, the corona crisis and the economic impact, it's early days yet, but certainly uh, I think the banks will be in for a rough ride. You know, you can look at a bank that did very well in 2019, but then suddenly the next year when many of its customers have trouble back paying back loans, it can, uh, can be difficult for them suddenly. Technology can also help banks save costs by closing physical branches and automating many transactions. Are bankers, like industrial workers, afraid that robots will steal their jobs? Well, over the past 10 years, banks have been steadily automating processes. For example, checking the signature on a check or uh, creating a credit report on a company. This can sometimes or often be done now by an automatic process rather than using a human worker. The good side for human workers is that frees them up to do, say, more intellectual or more creative activities. But the other side of that is it does give bank executives more leeway to slash jobs if they need to. I really think in terms of overall banking numbers of employees, the biggest indicator is really going to be revenue. And if banks are going through a tough, a tough spot, then they probably will accelerate Job of course, competition is fiercer than it ever was. In Asia, digital payment systems are on the rise. New players like WeChat and Alipay in China or fast-growing mobility apps such as Grab have essentially taken over online payments, which were once a substantial business for banks. How can old-fashioned financial institutions deal with these new threats? Well, when you look globally, you certainly see different scenarios in different markets. Asia is quite different to Europe, which is quite different to the United States. In America, they still use checks. Exactly. And so they do in the Middle East. If you look at, uh, I think China is, is the most you know, frequently put forward example of a, a country that has raced ahead with companies like Alipay and WeChat. And one reason that they evolved so quickly was that there was a, a need for, for digital payments or for payments that wasn't being met by uh, the banking sector at the time. Now, if you look at, for example, Europe, where a lot, most people will pay with debit card or credit card, there's less opportunity for a digital payment company to jump into the mix. So the hope for banks in Europe is that the transition towards a, a fully digital payments ecosystem happens slower than it has in Asia. In your article, you quote Philip Becker from Bain & Company, a consultancy, who believes banks will lose the customer relationship to fintechs and tech giants. He says they will eventually offer financial services through their own platforms and relegate banks to the role of back-end service providers. Yes, so he sees banks as fighting for the customer interface, which means when you use a banking service, do you do that via a banking app or some kind of other app, such as a mobility app or a shopping app? If you're using a, a mobility app or a shopping app, then that's where your customer data is. And essentially, the company that controls customer data, the customer relationship, can typically extract more value from it. So the, the danger for banks is that they get separated from their customers and essentially are kind of more like utility providers or commoditized. And that would, in the long term, mean lower profits and playing less of a role when it comes to retail customers. So finally, the billion-dollar question. How long will banks as we know them survive? 
Well, I think banks are probably here for the long run because for all the advances that tech companies have been making, the one big advantage that banks have is trust. People trust banks to look after their money and people also trust banks to look after their data and hold it safe. Now, when you look at tech companies, they've obviously had a rough 12 or 24 months in terms of some of the disclosures around how private data has been used or sold or repackaged. So there's a lot of wariness about trusting a tech company with your most intimate financial data. The other side of that is that there are many areas of banking outside of sort of retail banking, where such as corporate banking, investment banking, where it's relationship driven and where banks definitely have an edge over tech companies. Well, time will tell. Thank you, Stian, for sharing your insights with us. Thanks, Tim. And now, one more thing. Machine Sense has released a beta version of Fever Sense, a low-cost infrared temperature scanning system that can be installed in a gate or entrance of a retail store, factory, or office to automatically scan for body temperature. No human operator is needed to point a temperature gun, so proper social distancing is ensured. If high temperature is detected, the person can be identified and isolated effectively. The system also comes with a mobile app for self-registration of people who know they have elevated temperatures. MachineSense is running a beta test of the FeverSense system with Novatech, a plastic machinery company located in Baltimore, Maryland, which has been open during the state-mandated lockdown due to its classification as an essential manufacturing company. Versions of a similar product to use at home are in the pipeline, says Biplap Pal, the inventor, CTO, and co-founder of MachineSense, the at-home version will trigger an automatic doorbell alert if a person is standing outside, he says, avoiding the need to touch a doorbell. The system would then alert the house owner if the guest has an elevated temperature. That was We Talk IoT, the smart industry podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine, by visiting our website at www. Smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.